Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. A lot of people take a cookie-cutter approach to relationships. Basically, they start with a mold for what their relationship should look like, and then they try and make their relationship match that mold. For some people, this works. But for others, they find that it just doesn't fit, no matter how hard they try and smush it in there. When the mold doesn't fit, a lot of people break up and move on, or they resign themselves to living in an unhappy relationship. However, these folks might be missing out on another path. Instead of building your relationship on a set of things you think you're supposed to do or have to do, build it on the actual wants and needs of each partner involved. In today's show, we're going to talk about how to give your relationship a custom design. Specifically, we're going to discuss the concept of creative monogamy, which is all about finding the right relationship style that works for you and your partner or partners. I am joined by Dr. Jolie Hamilton, a research psychologist, TEDx speaker, best-selling author, and ASEC-certified sex educator. Jolie also hosts the Playing With Fire podcast with her anchor partner, Ken. Her academic research focuses on how jealousy impacts our most intimate relationships. Jolie helps people create non-monogamous or creatively monogamous partnerships that are custom-built for their authentic selves. This is going to be an amazing and very practical conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. New year, new sex life. Give yourself a boost in the bedroom this year with Beducated. Their online courses can help you to increase your sexual knowledge and skills. They can also help you to cultivate more satisfying relationships. They have courses for everything, including how to enhance intimacy, awaken pleasure, explore new sexual horizons, and connect on a new level. The content is amazing, and there's a lot to learn from these courses. Try them all today for free, and if you like what you see, you can get 40% off the yearly pass by using my last name, Miller, as the coupon code. Check the show notes for the link or visit beducated.com, and be sure to use my last name to get your discount. Enjoy. Become a certified sex educator, counselor, or therapist with the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. MSTI offers 20 certification options in areas including medical sexology, kink, neurodiversity, and LGBTQIA affirmative therapy. They also offer a PhD program in clinical sexology that can be completed in two years and meets all ASEC certification requirements. All programs can be completed 100% online and are flexible and customizable to fit your schedule. You can take live courses the third weekend of each month and choose from over 300 archive workshops taught by renowned experts in the field. For more information, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. Hi, Jolie, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Justin. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to speak with you. I'd like to begin our conversation by learning a little bit more about you. So specifically, how did you get into the world of sex and relationship education? What initially drew you to this field? Well, initially, I got into it because I had a lot of babies. I kept having a lot of babies. And when you have a lot of babies, well, sex is part of that for some of us. And I don't do anything halfway. So while I was having lots of babies, I also decided to become a childbirth educator, a lactation consultant. 
which meant I was often the one in the room when people were recognizing that there was something going on in their sex life. Something had changed. And I was just in my early 20s then, but I was game to figure stuff out. So I went for it. And at first, this was enough for me. But later, (laughs) later, I really, really wanted to know not just the the mechanics of how could we make sex more functional, but I wanted to know how do we do the relationship part better? And one thing after another, another, I found myself in a pretty messy relationship situation myself, learned and studied my way out of it. And now I help others follow that path, hopefully with more grace and definitely with lots more skill. Thank you for sharing that. And I think you make a really important point there about, you know, it's just, one thing to understand kind of the mechanics of sex, but it's another to understand the emotional and intimate elements and how to have relationships. And I think that's where a lot of sex ed is really incomplete. We know it's incomplete and terrible to begin with because people aren't getting the sexual information that they need. But a lot of sex ed is really just about the sex or the reproduction aspect of sex. And there's not enough emphasis on relationships and how do you build and cultivate and maintain healthy relationships over time. So I love that you do work in this area and that you emphasize both the sex and the relationships. Now, before we discuss creative monogamy, let me ask you first why monogamy in general seems to be so hard for so many people. I mean, monogamy has been the default relationship structure for centuries, and people have always struggled with it. I mean, infidelity, divorce, relationship conflict, these are not new things by any stretch of the imagination. You know, as long as humans have been practicing monogamy, they've been having problems with monogamy. But it seems like those problems have only grown over time. Now, this isn't true for everyone, of course. You know, monogamy isn't hard for everybody. But why is it hard for a lot of us? I love this question because one of the answers I give when people say, why am I non-monogamous? I say, because monogamy is too easy for me and I like problems. (laughs) So (laughs) I bring myself some intensity by veering from the monogamous path. But I think that at least given what I have seen, especially in my in-depth interviews and in-depth conversations with people who are struggling with monogamy or they are struggling with the reality that This idea of how monogamy should work, one, it is not stable. Yeah, it's been the default for a while, but it has not been stable. And if we look like at Stephanie Kuhn's work in like the history of marriage, what we're expecting to get out of monogamy today is just very short-lived. Most of us don't have good models. And really, when you get right down to it, humans, we get together, we, we brush up against other people in order to learn about ourselves and in order to do that, we're going to make mistakes. So I think it's completely reasonable that monogamy is a challenge because relationality is a challenge. Friendships can be a challenge. It's completely typical and normal. And yet we also ask monogamy to hold a lot for us. Like it's supposed to protect us from it being hard. And that's asking too much of it, really. Yeah. And I agree with that perspective. Part of the reason monogamy is hard is because we do have these really, really high expectations for it. And when you have really high expectations for anything, it makes it hard to meet those expectations. So let's talk creative monogamy. As a starting point, I always like to get the definition. So when you say the term creative monogamy, what exactly does that mean? And how is it different from some of the other terms we've discussed on this show, such as Tammy Nelson's idea of open monogamy? 
Well, I think it's actually incredibly close to what Tammy has outlined. In fact, I was writing about creative monogamy when I saw her book come out on open monogamy. I was like, oh, thank God, because one of the challenges of introducing new language is you need for people to see that you're not alone out there saying, hey, we can do it this different way. And I respect Tammy's work so much. One of the things that I like to say about creative monogamy is it is always going to be a custom built situation every single time. But the key and how we know it stays in the realm of monogamy is that you have determined that some domains of your relationship will be monogamous. They will be exclusive. And I like to use the word exclusive rather than monogamous because monogamy has a bunch of connotation. We immediately start thinking about sex. We start thinking about emotional intimacy. But when I'm talking about creative monogamy, I want to get really specific about where I'm going to be exclusive and where I'm going to be expansive. And I think that's actually what most people want from their marriages, from their monogamies. And yet we usually don't negotiate for it. We don't actively participate in that process. So let's do that. And from there, we can decide exactly how much of that exclusivity actually works for us. And then there's one more key ingredient. If you're going to do creative monogamy, you have to agree to revisit that exclusive, expansive balance on a regular schedule. It's not enough to just say, well, when it stops working, we'll deal with it then. I encourage people to think of this as a a regular check-in every one year to three years. You need to do a full overhaul, revisit it, because otherwise you will by default be waiting for problems to have already occurred. I really like this idea and the way that you frame it, because all too often when it comes to relationships and relationship agreements, people kind of take this all or nothing approach, you know, where on the one end of the spectrum, it's totally exclusive monogamous in all ways, you know, emotionally, sexually, you're not even going to necessarily have another best friend, right? Your partner has to be your best friend. So it's like checking all the boxes, like your partner on a pedestal in all ways. And on the other end of that, you know, there's sort of like open network polyamory and you have multiple intimate and sexual relationships with different people. And those are two kind of really extreme variants on this spectrum that don't necessarily work for most people, right? I think you're right that most people kind of want to be somewhere in between where they're exclusive in some ways and, as you said, expansive in others. Right. That just makes sense, right? Whenever we plot a group of people, (laughs) we're always going to wind up with that bell curve. And so there will be people who just thrive in, say, relationship anarchy or open networks. There will be people who thrive in lifelong committed monogamy. That's great. But to expect those outlying places to work for all of us for all times, because that's that's the other dimension. We are expecting it to work for what? 40 years, 50 years, 60, 70 years? That, I think, is where people usually are like, oh, yeah, that's a long time to expect the exact same relationship structure to hold me. And I think that goes in, in both directions, because at least in my work, what I notice is often when people go through phases of life, let's say raising a family or going through graduate school or building a new business, they want something different out of their relational life. But if we only have one script that is proper and correct, then it can be hard to negotiate for that or even impossible, especially if you're already in the script. <laughs> and I'm often helping people who are like, but we already said we were doing this. Yeah. But if we're in consensual relationships, then we have to be able to negotiate for change. 
Otherwise, they're not very consensual. Right. And I think you make a great point about how we change and we evolve over time. And you can kind of think about this through all aspects of our lives. Like when it comes to a relationship agreement, you probably don't want it to be exactly the same over the course of your life, just like you don't want your daily job to be the exact same day in and day out every day for 40, 50, 60 years, however long you're you're working in that area. And you don't want to eat the same foods every day. Like we have needs for novelty and variety and self-expansion and our relationships are no exception to that so it's just maybe i think a helpful reframe for just in general we need this novelty and self-expansion throughout our lives now let's talk a little bit about the process here so i know you teach a year-long program on this topic which means that you know when it comes to creative monogamy you don't like do this overnight you know like we're going to go have this discussion before bed the next day we're going to wake up creatively monogamous and it's just going to work out let's start at the beginning i know there's a lot that you could say on this but what are the very first steps involved in the process of creative monogamy yeah well the reason I take people through a full year is because time is an ingredient in all relationship change. You can absolutely have a mindset shift in a couple seconds. Great. But your practical application of that, (laughs) that's going to take some time. And usually you're going to fumble the ball some while you're moving forward. So what I like for people to recognize is that we're going to start with some really basic principles. And most people are like, wait, isn't this just relationship skills? I'm like, yep. They are because we need to go back to the beginning and make sure that we've got those down. So it's going to be things like figuring out what your relational values are on your own. What are your relational values? Figuring out what your relationship's purpose is with the current partner you have or with the partnership you wish to create. So basic things like that, values and purpose can provide nice foundations. And then we want to check in on the really essential skills of nervous system regulation. Like what tools do we have already in place individually to regulate and to make sure that we can manage upsets? Can we have a difficult discussion and then calm ourselves? So I actually put those pieces in place and some people walk in and they're like, yeah, we've got this. I'm like, great. This is review. This is like when you show up for the first day of school and you already know how to write your name and read a little bit. Great. Not a problem. Don't worry. In a couple months, you're going to be like, glad we reviewed. So glad we reviewed. Because you're going to start experimenting. The next step is always experimentation. And as soon as we start experimenting, we're going to run up against stuff we can't possibly conceive of before we've started. I think those are all such important points, especially the idea of getting some clarity around your values and what you really want when it comes to relationships. I think a lot of us go into dating and relationships without ever having given that any thought. You know, we're just like, I want a relationship, so I'm going to start dating. And it's just kind of following this aimlessly. And you might end up in a situation that doesn't meet your needs because you never really thought about what your needs were to begin with. And maybe you didn't realize what those needs were until you were in that situation. But yeah, so it's really getting that self-clarity, figuring out what it is that's going to work for you as the key first step. Now, when you get to that sort of experimentation point, right, and you've got this relationship agreement in place, 
it's going to take a lot of negotiation. Everyone has got to get on the same page, but sometimes people want different things or they have needs that are in conflict with one another. So what are some of the common challenges you see that come up in kind of navigating a creative monogamy agreement and any tips you might have on kind of how to deal with them effectively? You're, you're right. So this is where the rubber meets the road and we go, okay, some people are going to feel a little more easeful about this than others. And frequently, people don't see how challenging it is to create agreements because they don't realize that they were living under almost entirely implicit expectation. So I walk people through a process to help them make that visible, what your implicit expectations are, and start shifting to practice and try making explicit agreements, right? And so I don't ask people to negotiate their whole relationship all at once. I think that that is one of the biggest mistakes in making the shift to something more than monogamy. It's that we try to negotiate for the whole relationship and we want to sit down like Christian Gray with some big stack of papers. We're not doing that. <laughs> just, that's not it. For one thing, it's asking too much of you and it's asking too much of your partner to portend, to somehow imagine into the future how you're going to respond to things. So instead, I walk people through what I call my minimum viable agreement process. It's a very concise and meant to be short-lived agreement. So we practice making these smaller agreements and seeing what happens. Usually, one of the outcomes is at least one person finds out that they have a really hard time keeping their own word to themselves. They have a really hard time with like self-consent, holding their boundaries, sometimes both. It's really good to find that out in a small container rather than, okay, we've opened up and we've, you know, gotten on a dating app or we're going to clubs and we're experimenting and exploring. I want a small container. So the minimum viable agreement, the MVA, helps us take a baby step and then evaluate before we've done any major damage, evaluate and get repair going, right? So use those foundational skills. And then from there, we also need to reassess. Is the area that we decided to experiment in, is that the area we want to be expansive in? Or was that actually not the right choice for us? And that's why we picked those small containers. So it sounds like this is a process where you have to be willing to go in and say, you know, I might not know exactly how this is going to turn out, but it's going to be a learning experience and we're going to readjust, reassess, and eventually figure out where we need to be. And it might take a bit of trial and error. And I think you're so right that you don't want to sit there and try and think of every possible eventuality and what your rule or boundary should be for it and how you're going to do that. Because A, you can't possibly imagine every single situation or anticipate everything that's going to come up. And B, as a social psychologist, we know that people are pretty bad at projecting their future emotions. This is what we call affective forecasting, where you try to anticipate how you're going to feel in some future situation. And it turns out that people tend to overestimate their emotional responses. So in a positive situation, we tend to think that we're going to be a lot happier than we actually end up being. And in a negative situation, we actually think we're going to feel a heck of a lot worse than we actually end up feeling. So it actually goes toward both extremes. And so if you're sitting there trying to imagine all these scenarios and you're having these more extreme reactions, then you might create more extreme rules that end up not working. So yeah, that's part of the value, I think, of starting low, going in, experimenting, and then revising and reassessing as it moves along. 
the framing of it in that way, using the social psychology model there really helps because when people are watching their partner misestimate their emotional reaction, they often have their own judgments about that. And this is where we start right off. We start with this wobble of like, I expect you to behave differently when they're not noticing, oh, actually I'm poorly forecasting my, my own emotional response too. And that's why that that smaller agreement is an opportunity to do that with at smaller risk, like choose something that you can recover from. Yeah. It's sort of like going into a casino and do you want to go all in on the first hand or the first bet, or do you just want to make a small bet and test the waters and kind of see how things go and how you want to spend the rest of your night and, and your money and so forth. So, you know, all kinds of analogies you could make here. I'm not saying that, you know, romantic relationships are, you know, like a risky bet in a casino. I mean, in some ways they are, but you know, it's just, we never know what's going to happen. <laughs> you do never know what's going to happen. Uh, and sometimes you go big and go home. But anyway, <laughs> so in your course, you know, after a year's time, when people have gone through this journey of creative monogamy, what do their relationships look like? I mean, I know there's going to be a lot of variability because every relationship is unique, but can you give us a couple of examples of, you know, what's the endpoint after that one-year process and what can a creatively monogamous relationship actually look like? So important to think about this and to hear it because some people will go through this process and at the end, actually a couple I worked with privately really illustrated this beautifully. They went through the process. They made, they went through multiple iterations of the MVA and they then crafted their larger relationship agreement. They went all in and it was looking to me and to their friends, like they were actually headed down the path to polyamory, which is, you know, one option. Some people make that choice. And we got to the end we were in that last month and they did a little truth and reconciliation. They came together, they talked about it, and they decided that this was a fun adventure. But in fact, they were really happy having taken this as an adventure, like they toured Europe and now come back to their monogamy. And so they did that. And so they closed. They didn't have to end anything, but they did transition some relationships. And they had been able to set those, those relationships up for success because the people who they were relating to also knew that this was an exploration. They didn't know exactly where they were going. And so when they chose a much more traditional looking monogamy, they were able to do that that shift back, you could say, with more grace. But the thing that they kept that I love is they both kept really deep friendships with people of all genders, right? And that was not present in their earlier marriage. They just hadn't done it because it seemed outside of the box. And while that sounds really simple to some people, like, of course, you can have friendships of whatever gender, it's not for everyone. That is not comfortable and it's not written into the code of monogamy. So, just that little shift opened up their life. And they, as they moved forward, they set a date to revisit again. So they chose a three-year date. They decided to wait for three years. And we put it not just on their calendars, but on my calendar, come back, have a quick conversation and say like, where are you now? And I can't wait to see where three years finds them. Another way that this can go though, is that people find out that they're, they have really big differences like really, really big differences. Ending relationships is possible when you take off on a new adventure. 
just like ending relationships is possible when you don't. <laughs> lots of relationships fall apart and lots of relationships end. I was working with somebody not too long ago where this actually wound up being their elegant ending. They started exploring. They found out that one of them was really committed to sexual, emotional liberty in, at all places. They wanted fully open. Their partner was not available for that. The thing is, this was true before they started exploring too, but they didn't have the language. So it had just been a fight for about seven years in their relationship, which is this ongoing niggling fight. They explored, they experimented, and partner A was able to recognize that this was not negotiable for them. Partner B figured out that in fact, it was a deal breaker for them too. They'd been pretending for too long. They weren't trying to snow their partner, but they had been trying to make it okay. So they'd gone through years of, let's just keep talking about it. Then they finally got to a spot where they're like, okay, let's try. So they, they engaged with me and they tried. And they found out that they just weren't templated this way. They just, it didn't fit. And they remembered that they love each other enough to end well. It is not what I would wish for anyone, but honestly, having thrown my own life into the wood chipper once and done the whole divorce thing, I'll take an elegant ending any day of the week. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point that not every relationship can work, no matter how much you try and save it, because some people are just incompatible in terms of their wants and needs. But the only way to discover whether you can be compatible is to kind of go on a journey and explore and try some different things. Because all too often, people who are in these situations will just persist in those really unhappy relationships, sometimes for decades. And who is that good for? Who is that serving? You know, so getting out there on this journey, figuring out what works for you and your partner is so, so important. But I think as you were describing in your examples, you know, creative monogamy can look like a lot of different things. It could just be not being exclusive when it comes to friendships. You know, I think for a lot of people, when they enter a long-term romantic relationship or they get married, oftentimes they disappear from their former friendship circles. You know, I've had a lot of friends who have gotten married and I just have never seen them since. And I don't know what happened to them. A wedding's a goodbye party. <laughs> I know, I, really, I'm starting to think about wedding gifts as goodbye gifts or parting gifts because it's like, eh, I'm probably never going to see you again. Um, <laughs> but I think it's because so many people kind of have that expectation that your partner's your best friend, they become your whole life. And, you know, it's sad in a lot of ways. And I think that a lot of people come to regret that or miss that later on when they realize, I don't have any of my friends anymore and I don't have anybody else to turn to for advice. So, you know, that's one way that creative monogamy can work or look. Another way could be maybe it's sexually open, but only sexually and not emotionally with another person. It, it could be discovering that you're incompatible. Like there's all different kinds of ways this can go. And that's one of the best examples, I think, that people don't realize could be a huge upside for them. Finding out that you like having sex with other people and it doesn't have to change your the baseline of how your life works. I mean, this has been tried every time I've spoken with anyone of any generation going back. So the oldest person I've discussed this with closely just passed away they, when they were 95. He was like, yeah, we were revolutionary. We were revolutionary in the forties. Like this is not, this is not new. We're not inventing something, but figuring out how to do it well. And then 
put it in the context of the rest of your life that you like means learning a bunch of skills and also divesting from some of the ideas. I, I love what you're saying about when we forget about all the other people in the world, <laughs> that comes at a cost. So it is usually friendships and sex that are the most difficult to navigate, but also with the most fruit to bear. There's so much to be gained by being able to let go of exclusivity around this, at least to some degree, and allow our partner to be different. The number one skill I'm, I'm really working on with people is differentiation and then hopefully individuation. If I can do that, I feel like it's a total win. And I totally agree. Now, as you've mentioned several times in talking about these relationship agreements, you know, they're not permanent, they're not set in stone, and they need to be revisited and revised occasionally. So what's your general recommendation for how often people should visit their relationship agreements? I mean, I know everybody, every relationship is different, but is there some kind of rough rule of thumb that you might recommend? I actually take a bilateral approach. So on the one hand, I remind people all the time, your relationships can always be negotiated. So on an as-needed basis is always available to everyone you're relating to. And yeah, we need to have stuff on the schedule or we make the error of assuming stuff is working when it's not. So I tend to encourage people to do two different kinds of review. I want at least at least quarterly reviews where we read our agreements. And most people really need to read their agreements like weekly at first, really, because it's not about holding your partner to it. It's about holding yourself to your agreement. And so you're going to need some tools to remind yourself, what did I say? So I ask people to write it out longhand and then read it once a week at the beginning. Then I want you to revisit it like with a negotiator's eye, like what's working, what's not working. We go through a process of how do we decide whether something's working and what do we do if something's working well for one person and not well for another. And from there, after we've crafted enough relationship agreement that we feel like, okay, you know what? We've got this. I recommend a yearly full negotiation. And um, I mean, if you're like me, every three years, I actually have a full off-ramp in my anchor relationship and we have to decide to re-up now, not everybody wants to go to that extreme, but I love that because it means every three years, we really go soup to nuts. So decide for yourself what the pacing should be, but there should be a cadence of revisiting and put it on your calendar, put it on whatever your shared calendar is now while you like each other, because it's really hard to try to schedule that when you're like in the itch, when it's not feeling great. Yeah. And one thing I would add to that would be, in addition to having those regular check-ins scheduled, if something comes up in between, don't save it and hold it for the next check-in. You know, you have to take that as needed piece of advice there as well, because if you sit there and let it fester for months or a year or you know, however long the delay is between when the problem emerges and when you're having your next check-in, that's not going to work out all that well in the end. So definitely address problems as they come up. Right. And usually what happens if, we are, if we're waiting, we start going to evidence collecting mode without even realizing it. And now we're collecting evidence for something our partner doesn't even know is a problem. So we come in armed and ready. This is not how we want to go forward <laughs> with the relationship. So yeah, yeah, you exercise your ability to be in consent, to be in full consent all the time. 
Yeah. No, that's so true that, you know, when you have something that really bothers you and then you start looking for this pattern of behavior, that also allows the resentment to build and you're getting angrier and angrier at your partner and they may not realize that anything else is going on. And then it's just coming out of nowhere. And for every single instance of this, you're treating it as a relationship betrayal, but they don't even know that it is a betrayal in terms of how you're perceiving it. So yeah, super important to address these things as they come up. Now, we're running short on time, but I have one last question for you, which is for your advice on how someone in a monogamous relationship who wants to make a change can communicate about this effectively with a partner. Because it's very easy for conversations like these to blow up into big fights. So any tips you can share on how to start the conversation out on the right foot so that you can talk about things productively instead of creating a conflict? Yeah, I get this so much that I actually made a special, I have a one-page instruction sheet that actually has a 17-minute conversation between myself and my anchor partner. It's a conversation for you to give to your partner and just say like, I don't know how to have this conversation well. Would you please listen to this? Because what I have seen over the years is most people within just a couple sentences of beginning the conversation, they're actually off point. And they forget to reassure, 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 reassure. And so I actually did that homework for people. If they want it, they can ask me for it. Um, I share it freely because I think no matter how you're going to explore, starting the conversation with a truly open mind to, I'm also willing to accept a no from you, but I want to have the conversations. I want to explore that. I hate seeing people not be able to have that conversation. It's so important in all of this to be able to hear no. And that's something a lot of us don't hear very well, but it's a skill that we need to learn. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Jolie. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? Yeah. So the easiest way to learn about my work is to follow me on Instagram, actually. If you follow me, Dr. Jolie underscore Hamilton, it's D-R-J-O-L-I underscore Hamilton, like the musical. That's the easiest way to find out what I'm up to. And when I'm talking about jealousy there, I'm making it really personal. So I invite people to tell me what's going on because I've practiced now applying the research to jealousy. So you don't have to. (laughs) You can just get the application handed to you. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for your important work. I'll be sure to link to your social handles and website in the show notes. Thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Mm-hmm.